0: This message here, when we, when we finished last week, we were in Romans. We're in Romans chapter 9. Please turn to Romans chapter 9. I want to review because this is really critical. When we finished Romans last night last week, I didn't, know, I didn't have a clue of what was, good, what was lying ahead of us. But from verses 22 to 29, there are going to be some truths mentioned that you, I think, have asked your heart before why, and, and you've never really had the answer. Maybe you have, but if you have not, I want to give you, by the Word of God, the answer to one of the most amazing questions that anyone might ever have, and that is, why? Why in the world did God allow sin to come into the earth in the first place? Wouldn't it have been a much simpler situation had He stopped Satan from tempting Eve? She didn't eat of the fruit, nothing would have happened, and everybody would have been saved and, and wonderful ever since. But that's not the way it works. And it didn't work for a reason. And this place in Scripture answers that of all the places. And it's an amazing place. The questions that Paul is making, actually he is speaking to the Jewish nation. He's speaking to the Jews. But in essence, he is speaking to all of us. You really need to see that. You need to break it down to see what the Bible is saying to you at that particular time. Yes, he is speaking to the Jews in Rome, but he is also speaking to us today. And the questions that Paul is making them confront, and as us confront as well, is this He is asking them, Is God fair? Is he just? Who is he? Can you yourself become like God? Does he indiscriminately harden hearts? Does he love and hate without cause? Just as he did Esau and Jacob before they were born. He said, Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated. How can he say such a thing? By the way, when scripture talks about hate and love, you must remember this. God does not mention hate like we think of hate humanly. When God says he hates Esau, it meant that God did not find favor with Esau. And when he said he loved Jacob, it means that he found favor with Jacob. And the favor that he found with Jacob and not with Esau was with Jacob came the line of Jesus Christ. That's why he said, I love Jacob, and I hate Esau. He didn't hate Esau. He just didn't find favor with Esau. Favor was found with Jacob. And in the other way, when when, God's, when Scripture says that God hardens the heart. As a matter of fact, you're in Romans chapter 9 right now. Take a look, and let's remind ourselves of verse 17. You remember verse 17? The Scripture says to Pharaoh, remember? For this very purpose, God's saying, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you so that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, verse 18, He has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And when we mentioned that last week, the Bible does not indicate at all in Exodus that Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God. We learned through Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so when the, ball, when, the, when the scriptures speak of hardening a heart, we've got to remember that that simply means that God moved in the life of Pharaoh and forced Pharaoh to do what was already in his heart. He works on his timetable, his meaning God's. And so he simply moved in the life of Pharaoh to make Pharaoh do what Pharaoh was going to do anyways. That's what it means when it talks about hardening a heart. So we can't just haphazardly say well, God loves some people and hates others. No. He finds favor with some people and not with others. And God doesn't harden a heart so that you might not respond to him. No. He just forces you to reveal what is in your heart anyways. So that, that is a a bad rap, quote unquote, if you might say, about people think that don't understand scripture about our God. I'm going to teach you another most marvelous thing about God when it comes to talking about uh, preparing a, a place for destruction, as it mentions here in verses 22 to 29. And so the question that Paul is making you and me and the Jews and the people in Rome confront is simple. It's a simple premise. Do you trust God? Maybe better, can you trust Him? And Paul is saying, absolutely. Let's take a look. Chapter 9, verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed, has it? He asks. He says in verse 8, Who are the children of God's promise? Is it Sarah, Rebekah, Jacob? Or is it Hagar, Ishmael, Esau? Verse 14, he says, there is no injustice with God, is there? And then he answers the most strongly phrased negative that can be put in the Greek language. May it never be, he says. He tells us in verse 15 that God's going to have mercy on whom he'll have mercy, and he will have compassion on whom he has compassion. And then he tells us in verse 16, it doesn't depend upon us. No, everything depends upon our God. That is, can you trust Him? And then verse 17, he says, as we just read about Pharaoh, all of this was done to show God's power and to proclaim the name of God throughout the whole earth. That's the purpose you and I live, by the way. The purpose you and I draw breath is to proclaim the glory of God in and through our lives. And that should be something you and I strive for in every waking moment that we live, to represent our Lord. Ultimately, you and I are to display His power in this world in which we live. And I drew out a wonderful verse uh, that's not really relevant to where we're going today, but it is to this statement. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord God says, it's not by your might, nor is it by your power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord. When people begin to see Christ in you and in me, that's when we're on our way to real maturity in our faith. So, Paul begins by asking or really declaring another rhetorical statement in verses 22 to 29. Some of the greatest verses you'll ever study about the character of our Lord. He begins by saying, What if God... He wants to make him think. He wants to make you and me think. Let's read verses 22 to 29. And then I'll try to explain as best I can what all the glory that is found in these wonderful verses. Paul begins by simply asking a rhetorical question. What if God... Verse 22... "...although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us." whom he also called, not among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Now he's going to quote verses 25 through 29, two places out of Hosea and two places out of Isaiah, about the Jewish nation. Look what he says. He says in Hosea, verse 25, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, Beloved, and it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, "You are not my people," there they shall be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah out, calls out, "Excuse me." Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved, for the Lord will execute His word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a prosperity, meaning a seed or a generation or a remnant, unless the Lord left us that, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Let's pray. Father, please teach us. Move me aside. I beg of you, Lord. Oh, please, Father, I beg of you, please do not let me interfere with what you want to say to each and every one of us here this morning. And Lord, I want to thank you for the, the blessings that you bring our way. Father, as it says in the book of Psalms, would you open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law, not my thoughts, not my idea of religion or my idea of, of church or anything like that. No, let, let us find out, Father, what you think about it, what you have to say. As Paul is pleading with the people in Rome, can we trust you? Father, are you, are you someone that is fair and just? We believe you are, dear God, and so we pray that you would bless us. Let us hear from you this morning, I pray in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Amen. I want you to know, verses 22 to 29 just blew me away this week while I was studying. It was one of those times where you just didn't even want to stop. Have you ever, have you ever had that experience, that wonderful experience? You get to studying and, you, uh, in fact, I lost weight this week. It was really a great week uh, because I, I, got, I studied. I, I studied through lunch and, and, and went through right to dinner. I mean, I just, just, it was overwhelming, the information that was pouring out of this place in Scripture. This is an amazing statement into the very character of our God. Verses 22 to 29 gives us many reasons as to why God allowed sin to enter in and contaminate this universe in which we live in the first place. Now if you've ever wondered that question, which I have, and I've had people ask me over and over and over again. And now I have a very, very wonderful place to turn them and try to show them what the Bible has to say about this. But this, about this issue. So here is the answer, but I wonder if you'll agree with it. First and foremost, verse 22, one word. you got to pull out one word and one word only because it's critical. It is the word willing, W-I-L-L-I-N-G. It is in the Greek... Uh, A very stronger word than in the English language. In the Greek, it carries the idea of a proposed intent. Something, in other words, that God was willing to or determined to or that he gave complete consent to allow sin into his creation. Now, why he does that did not make sense to me. Except that I knew this. And we studied it last week out of Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. When God says, My thoughts, they're not your thoughts. My ways, they're not your ways. Because he says, my thoughts and my ways are higher than yours. So as the heaven is higher than the earth, so are my thoughts and my ways higher than yours. And so God had a plan in allowing sin to come into the earth earth in the first place. And it was because... It was because, as verse 22 tells us, it gave him the opportunity, note, verse 22, to demonstrate his wrath against sin and to make his power known. Now, we've already learned this. But sometimes you learn something and you don't bring it to the place that you ought to cross-reference it. We're in Romans chapter 9. Turn back to Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 18. You'll remember because it talked about those who sinned against God, and sinned against God willingly, wanted to, hid their their desire to follow after God. Listen to verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because, watch, that which was known about God is evident within them. God made it evident to them. In other words, they knew. They knew about God. They just hid it from themselves. They just put it aside. They pushed it back. I want to pause for a moment. If you're that type of person, listen closely to today's message. Listen to the Lord God speak to your heart. If you're waiting to kind of find a a more opportune moment to come to Christ, I'm telling you today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. So, they, what, verse 19, they know about God. It's evident within them. God made it to evident to them. How? Verse 20, since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature, they have been clearly seen. And they have been understood through what was made so that they, they meaning those that suppress the truth, They're without excuse. They have no excuse, he says. For even though, verse 21, they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God. They didn't give Him thanks. But they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Now if you want to have a time, read the rest of of chapter 1 when you have the time to see what he has to say about God giving them over to their sin. You see, God... If we go back to Romans chapter 9, God is glorified in displaying His wrath and His power against sin just as surely as He is glorified when He displays His grace, His mercy upon those of us that come to Him by faith. Because both of these attributes, His His wrath as well as His grace, display His divine nature and His character. And so we see the fullness of God. God's anger and vengeance is poured out upon sin. That is the truth of the Word of God. Just as surely as God's grace and mercy is poured out upon those of us who come to Him by faith. Both the same. Both display His majestic, divine holiness, the very essence of this God whom we love, who Paul is trying to convince the people that they can trust this God. So sin enters into the world. The reason being is to make our Lord's power known and His judgment real of sin. Now, where do we see that? Well, you see it in a lot of places. But probably the most evident is at His second coming. Turn with me, hold your place here, into the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, and turn to the 20th chapter, please. It's at the great white throne judgment seat of God where every soul is going to be judged by God and in a display of His divine majesty and His divine power over sin and sin How he will glorify those in grace. Watch. John writes in verse 11 of chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. He says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. Now can you imagine the power of this God? The presence of earth and heaven fled from him. No place was found for them. And then John writes in verse 12, I saw the dead, the great as well as the small, standing before the throne. And books were open, And another book was open, which is the book of life. Stop for a second. If you want your name anywhere, it's in the book of life. You want your name written in the book of life. And we're going to explain to you how you can have that done. But there are two books open. There is a group of books And there is also the book of life. Let's read again. Let me read verse 12. Start it again. I saw the dead. I saw both great as well as the small standing before the throne. Books were opened and another book was opened, which is called the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. Not the book of life, but the books according to their deeds. In other words, according to the things that they have done. All right? Now, John says in verse 13, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades also gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every single one of them, according to their deeds, according to what they have done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is called the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15, Here's why I want your name in that book of life. Mine too, by the way. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that person was thrown into the lake of fire. Don't go away. Turn back to chapter 19 in the book of Revelation for a minute. And I want to show you the glory of God when He comes to judge sin. And now we're going to see Jesus Christ in all of His glory riding out of heaven in a white horse with, a, with his robe di- still having blood stains on it that he, had, that he had taken upon the cross. Watch. I saw, in verse 19, verse 11, I saw heaven open up. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. What is he judging and waging war? Against sin, against those people we read about just a little while ago in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. 18 to 21. Those people who knew better but denied the Lord. So he's coming out. And he is going to wage war. Look, verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire. And upon his head are many diadems. That means he is Lord of lords. He is the ruler of rulers. And he has a name that is written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin. And his name is called the Word of God. It's Jesus. He's riding out of heaven on a white steed to judge and to wage war against sin. And who is riding with him? Oh, next verse. The armies, that's us, which also are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We're following him on white horses, that's us. I swore that I'd never want to get on a horse again. That's not true. I want to get on a horse up there. The last time I was on a horse was on a vacation in Montana. It was on our first day on vacation. We were riding out, and my horse went left, and I went right. And I broke two of my ribs. (laughs) It was funny. When I fell, the first thing I did was look up and say, Who saw me? It was so funny. I just, it was funny. And then it was very sore. But anyways... We'll be riding out of heaven with Him. We're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And from, verse 15, "...from His mouth will come a sharp sword, so that he, with it He may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Folks, that if we were a Pentecostal church, you'd be laying on the ground now. <laughs> We'd be flapping around, hallelujah. That's some of the greatest words in all of Scripture. He is coming out of heaven to judge the world of sin. and That is a part of his glory That is a way that people can see he is exactly who he said he is. Now, enough of that. Let's go back to chapter 9 because there is so much more that Paul wants us to understand in this wonderful verse. I mean, excuse me, in this wonderful place in Scripture. In verse 22, we are told he is endured with much patience. Our Lord shows again His patience towards those who are putting off coming to Him for salvation. Remember last week in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9? We said that the Lord is not slow about His promises as some count slowness. But He is patient towards you. He does not wish for any of us to perish but for all of us to come to repentance. He longs for you and me to come to accept Him as our Lord and as our Savior. Now in verse 22, the Greek verb here is, is so, so important. I've heard so many misstatements about God wanting to send people to hell. I will prove to you by Paul, not by me, that that was never God's intention. Ever, never, never. Look at verse 22 again and listen to this statement... This has been prepared, this place has been prepared for destruction. Prepared for destruction in the Greek language is in the passive voice. Why is that important? It relieves God of any responsibility and puts the responsibility of a place prepared for destruction fully upon the shoulders of those who refuse to heed His word and refuse to accept His Son. How do I know? Let me show you. Good question you asked. Turn with me please to Matthew chapter 25. First book in the New Testament is the book of Matthew. It is the gospel. There are four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some say that the book of Acts could be a fifth gospel. I don't believe so, but I believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us exactly who Jesus Christ is from different points of view. In Matthew, we see Christ as the King of the Jews. Now, here in Matthew chapter 25, starting with verse 31, Jesus Christ is explaining to the disciples what it's going to be like when He comes back the second time. What we just read out of the book of Revelation. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory... He says, all the angels are going to be with Him. Then He will sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as a shepherd would separate sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right hand, and the goats on His left. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, note, Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What is this kingdom that has been prepared for the sheep on his right from the very foundation of the world? What is it? You don't have to answer if you if you don't know for sure. I don't want. To, I'll let me tell you so you know. It's heaven. It's the place of glory. That place that has been prepared for the sheep has been prepared for them long ago. He is, even now we are told in Scripture, He is preparing that place for us. It's, it's going to be beyond description. But this place has been prepared for them since the very beginning of time, long ago. Okay, what, do I, what does that mean? I'll show you in a moment. That place has been prepared for human beings who have come to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to the Messiah. In the New Testament, we look backwards at Him. But both Old Testament and New Testament people come to trust in God by faith. So they ask, who is these people? He said to them, verse 35, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you also invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will say to them, truly, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. That's why we are told to help those in need. That's why we are told to go out and help people. The, what we do for the least of the people or the most of the best of the people, we do it unto the Lord. Okay, what's my point? Look at verse 41 for me. And look at it closely. Then he will say to those on his left... Who are on his left? Well, those are the goats. Those are the ones who who have not chosen to accept him. He will say to those on the left, Truly, I know. So, uh, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for who? Prepared for them? Who is it prepared for? Very important to understand because our Lord gets a terrible rap about this. This place was prepared for the devil. And his fallen angels. That place called hell was never, ever, ever prepared for any human being. It wasn't prepared for them. Any human being that decides to go to hell is not God's decision, it's their decision, as he taught us in 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 Romans chapter 1. They knew what was right in their heart. They chose in their own hearts to deny the Lord. And in choosing to deny them, they choose to follow after Satan. You see, there is, the Bible's clear on this too, there are but two camps. There are not a lot of religious denominations. There is either a saint or you ain't. Amen. Dr. J. Vernon McGee, you're either a saint or you ain't. And there are the only two camps in this really world in which we live. And the camp that God prepared for us is a place called heaven. A place that he prepared for the devil and his fallen angels is a place called hell. And those that go to hell who are humans are those who choose to go there because they refuse to trust in Christ. You see what Paul's trying to say to the people? He is trying to convince them who Do you trust? Can you trust God at His word? If so, then come to His Messiah. Come to your Messiah. Come to His Son, Jesus Christ. Ask Him into your heart. He and only He can forgive you of your sin. He and only He can give you eternal life. And He has a place that has been prepared for you long ago called heaven. And you don't want to go to that place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Why in the world would anyone choose to go there? That's what boggles my mind. Why people hear the gospel and say, oh, I want more information. Goodness gracious, folks, you have enough information. I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but if you're here this morning and you're hearing the message, what we're trying to say so far, you have enough understanding about Christ to ask Him into your heart to forgive you of your sin and to make you into the person He has created you to be. You have enough information. Just don't put it off. The problem with us is we want to put it off. Let's go back and try to finish this up in the next seven minutes. Please. E, am halfway through. How am I going to do that? I'll do it. I'll try. Oh, well, I was five minutes late last service. So hell was never a place that was prepared for mankind. Don't let people get you into a trap teaching, saying to you, well, why would God send anyone to hell? He doesn't. God sends any, everybody to heaven. If you go to hell, you go there on your own choice. Look at verse 23. God allowed sin to enter into the world not only to demonstrate His wrath, to demonstrate His power, but verse 23, our Lord also did it in order that He might make known, watch now, verse 23, the riches of His glory upon the vessels of mercy. Remember, in verse 22, there were vessels of wrath. Those were non-believers. Vessels of mercy, that's us. Christians, those who trusted in Christ, He has made ready a place for us that He has prepared beforehand for glory. The primary purpose for your salvation and my salvation is to bring honor and glory to our Lord. He saves us. Vessels of mercy. Look, your life, my life, is supposed to be a picture of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why you and I draw breath. It's not to do grandiose things. Oh, we can, and and hopefully we will. But that's not the purpose of being saved. The purpose you and I are to be saved is to show the world out there the wonders of Christ. There are people out there that are dying. They're dying and going to hell. And they just are skipping their way onto hell, and they don't realize how much wonderful things that we have in here how much we have that that God has blessed us with and we're to go out in this world in which we live and to show people the wonders of our Savior. It's it's critical. It's it's why we draw breath, to be honest with you. You see, we have been saved without... Paul's been clear on this. In fact, let me show you. Turn back to chapter 4. Paul's been very, very clear about all of this. Look at chapter 4 of Romans. He, he used Abraham as his example. We have been saved without any merit, without any work, without any credit on our own. Our salvation comes totally and purely by faith. Look what he said about Abraham. What then in verse four chapter 4, verse 1? What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found out? What has he realized? If Abraham was justified by works, in other words, by what he has done, then he has something to boast about. But Paul writes, but not before God. What does the scripture say concerning Abraham? It says this, Abraham believed God, had faith in God, trusted God, and it was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham's belief, his faith, his trust in God is what gave him his righteousness, just as it does for you and me. Folks, there is no credit that we have for anything that we do to come to salvation. That's why it says Back in the book of Revelation when it talked about the, the books that were open and they were judged by the things that they did because what they did has no merit with God. What has merit with God is when you and I trust in Christ by faith and faith alone. That's everything. And as he says in verse 24, are we back in Romans chapter 9, verse 24? It's, it was it was for whom he called not only among the Jews, but also the Gentiles. In other words, it's a universal call to mankind for God's grace, all given to us through faith. Now, let me see if I can finish this up. The two quotations come out of Hosea and Isaiah. Um, It shows that Israel's unbelief and rejection of the Messiah fit what the prophets had predicted. Paul declares in verse 25... A quotation out of Hosea chapter 2. Let me, put, let me read it to you. Verse 25. Paul writes, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And I will call her who is not beloved, beloved. To fully understand what Paul is saying in Hosea. You need to understand Hosea. Let me see if you know about Hosea. Hosea is in the Old Testament. It's... Uh, it's Oh, golly! How do I explain where it is? It's 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 right near um, it's right near the, the when the New Testament begins. Find Hosea, find it. Uh, let me read to you out of Hosea. In Hosea chapter one, verse two, the Lord God spoke to Hosea. Hosea was a prophet of God, and the Lord said to Hosea, "Go take yourself a wife." And Hosea said, "Yeah, I will." Right. He says, go take yourself a wife of harlotry. Huh? What would you say to God? I'm to take a wife out of harlotry. Really? Yeah. And no, have children with her of harlotry. Because, he says, the land commits flagrant harlotry. What's their flagrant harlotry? God says, they have forsaken me. The Lord, You know, you don't have to read a lot to understand that there is, there is a terribleness about us denying our Lord. There is a terribleness, even us as, as, as believers, to not fully live for the Lord and be disobedient to Him. So, he did. He found her. You know what her name was? <laughs> Gomer. I hope nobody has a kid or his name Gomer because I think it's kind of funny. It's kind of an unusual name for a woman. Maybe not. I shouldn't make fun. So he took Gomer for his wife. She gave him a daughter, and then she, wait, she gave him a son first, named him Jezreel. Then after that, she gave him another, another, do, another child, named, a daughter named Lo Ruhama. And then she gives him another child, another son by the name of Lo Ami. Gomer, Hosea's wife, was a harlot. The Lord commanded Hosea to take her as his wife, to keep her as his wife, despite her adultery, or more correctly, because she was a woman of adultery. Why? Gomer's moral unfaithfulness to Hosea provided a vivid picture of Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness to God. Let me say that again. Gomer's moral unfaithfulness to Hosea provided a vivid picture of Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness to God. You know what Gomer, what, what Hosea had to do with, with, with Gomer? She ran from him. She went back into the lifestyle of harlotry. He had to go and buy her on the open market. She was there being sold to anybody that wanted to try to buy her. And here's Hosea standing alongside all the other men in the community, and she's up there naked. The Bible says as a jaybird, I, I added as a jaybird. She was naked, full of shame, and Hosea's bidding against these other guys to buy her back as his wife. It's a vivid picture of how God someday will buy back Israel. Hosea had three children. She had a daughter named Lo-Ruhamah, which means not pitied or not having compassion. She had a son whose name was Jezreel. It means God scatters seed. She had another son named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. That's what his name translated to mean. Those three names represented God's attitude towards Israel who were his chosen people. They were murderers. They were scatterers without a home. They were without compassion. They were not his people and they were forsaken by God. Until that time, God says he will treat them and such. But in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, we are told this. God says, I will allure her back to me. I will take her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. And then in verse 19 of chapter 2, he says, I will betroth her to me forever. I will betroth her in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness and in compassion. Our God is a loving God. He is a forgiving, loving God. Now, in all of this, of course, Paul is writing to Israel, the nation of Israel. There's no doubt about that. But it doesn't take too much of an imagination to, want to see that the Lord is speaking to every one of us who will hear His words. And yet, to those of you who refuse to, to accept Him, I beg of you, don't put it off. I beg of you, if you hear his voice at all in your heart, come to him. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. The warning to us as of church is pure and simple. Don't take for granted what, what we have. And don't let, the world, don't let the world try to mold us into what they say God is without us really understanding who he is. He is a loving, kind, and gracious God. He doesn't send a soul, not one person, to hell. Hell is a place that a person chooses because they choose not to follow what they already knew in their heart was the right thing to do, and that was to come to Christ. If you're here this morning, today, I'm already four minutes late, please forgive me. Today is the first day of September. Perfect day to remember. My day was... March the 12th, 1973. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Today, September the 1st, 12, let's give 20. It's 19, but let's say it's 1220, easy to remember, of the year 2013. Now it's, some say you should have an altar call. I I, I don't know. It's not critical. What's critical is what's in your heart. What, What do you feel right now? For those of us who know we know the Lord, our job and our task is simple. Let's represent Him best we know how in this world in which we live. Let's, hey David, let's glorify our Lord. Let's, let's just love Him and just represent Him the best we know how. For those of you here who you don't know for certain that you've ever asked Christ in your heart, it's not a big thing you have to do. Just ask Him. Forgive you. Please forgive me my sin. Please make me into the person you want me to be. We'd love to, as a church, help you grow on that walk. We'd love you to become the man, the woman, the person of God that God's called you to be. And we'd love for you to help us grow, become the men and women that we ought to be in Christ. I'm sorry, I went late. Six minutes, I owe you. Um, but, yeah. yeah, he is, isn't he? She said, it's okay, God's worth it. I agree with that. Um, let's close in prayer. If any of you have come to Christ and you want to talk to me at all, I'm here. I'll talk to you. I'll just be seated right here on this step, and um, I'll talk to you. Someone, some man stick around help me up. <laughs> once I get down. My father. father, we want to thank you for the most precious gift that you could give any of us, and that's everlasting life. You've prepared a place in heaven for every single human being that walks the face of this earth. But some, for whatever reason, choose not to trust. Choose not to believe. Oh, Father God, please open up our hearts so that we might hear from you. Open up our hearts so that we might respond to you. And Lord, thank you so much for this moment, this wonderful, wonderful day that you've given us. I love the people here in this church so much, Father. I pray that you'll continue to bless us as a body of believers. I pray this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.